This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 25. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of freelance recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the 25th session of the Working Class Audio Podcast, brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com. Number 25, we are here. Yes, celebrating. Celebrating, of course, because when I started this thing, it was a shot in the dark, and I thought, I don't know if anybody's going to care about this, but what the heck? I'll go for it. And lo and behold, people started downloading it. People started sending me very complimentary messages. And uh, here we are, 25 episodes later. So thank you for all of your support. Thank you for uh, continuing to download and spread the word and be a part of the conversation here at Working Class Audio. Super happy to be here celebrating the 25th episode today. And in order to celebrate appropriately, we're going to have two guests on today. And in the spirit of Working Class Audio, which as you know, if you've been a long-term listener, you know that this show is not about glamorizing and ooing and aahing over the music industry, the recording industry. Uh, it's about kind of getting into the nuts and bolts of it. Sometimes talking about the cold, hard realities of it, sometimes celebrating the, the, the fun part of it, looking at the gear part of it with a certain amount of um, respect and uh, caution as well. And today's show is going to have two guests on. And our first guest is going to be Mr. Craig Schumacher. Now, as many of you know, I have been promoting the Potluck Audio Conference in Tucson, Arizona. And you might have noticed on Facebook that I said that the conference is off. Well, it is officially off. And Craig is coming on the show to explain why. And it's part of, in the spirit of working class audio, it's part of that cold, hard dose of reality. And Craig has come on the show to explain what the situation is. So uh, you'll notice the banners have been removed from the Working Class Audio site, the 15% off thing that I've been uh, telling you about. There it is. So I'll just tell you right now, if you've bought a plane ticket to Tucson, there is a backup plan to take care of you. If you haven't, great, no problem. But Craig's going to be on here shortly to uh, talk about that. And uh, yeah, it's it's disappointing, but... Uh, we support Craig, we support the Potluck Audio Conference, and whatever decision he makes, we trust. Yeah, I think Craig has made the right decision in light of the reality on the ground. So, there it is. The other part of the show today, a little more upbeat, and very, very excited to have this gentleman on, Mr. Tim Palmer. The first British guest we've had on, although he is officially an American citizen, Tim Palmer, mix engineer, producer, engineer from going back about 30 years. And you might ask, well, who's Tim Palmer? What has he done? Well, Tim's got quite the discography, and I could probably sit here and take up the next, I don't know, 20 minutes of your time telling you about every single record. But I'll tell you about just a few, a few of the artists. Um, Pearl Jam's 10 record, groundbreaking record for that band. He mixed, uh, he's worked with Robert Plant and Tears for Fears, and uh, you can all include a link to his site, and you can check out all the records he's done. 
But Tim is now based in Austin, Texas, and he's built a studio in his home following that trend that we we see time and time again or hear about time and time again here on WCA. He's a he's an old school guy who's got a ton of experience who is adapting to the new ways of doing things in the recording world to make it work for him from a business standpoint and to uh, serve his clients best. And I think that's I think that's a noble thing to do. Here we are. We've got uh, Craig Schumacher. We've got Tim Palmer. We're celebrating 25 sessions of interviews here at Working Class Audio. If you are new to the podcast and this is your first one, welcome. If you'd like to interact a little bit, always feel free to email me, matt at workingclassaudio.com, of course. The Facebook page is a great place to go. Twitter, we're on Instagram, we're on Tumblr, we're everywhere, and you can reach out and I may not have the time to respond immediately, but over time, many of you may have found that you send me a message and then like a month or two later, I've replied and asked you a question. And you can send me suggestions on guests. And uh, I do kind of have a checklist that that I go by. So don't don't imagine that just because you mentioned a name, it's going to, the person's automatically going to be on here. But uh, yeah, man, we are interested in talking to uh, freelance recording professionals who are in the music side, the location sound side, uh, video games, whatever it is. I want to talk to them because they have information that we can use about running your business as a recording professional. So there you go. That's it. Uh, let's get to uh, my conversation with Craig. Craig called me the other day and just said, hey, man, it's off. And I said, okay, uh, I need you to come onto the show and I need you to, you know, explain why, because, you know, obviously I don't want to leave you all in the dark and Craig certainly doesn't either. So here we go. Our Skype conversation with Mr. Craig Schumacher here on Working Class Audio. Hey. Hey, I was going to have you on the podcast to uh, talk about the conference, talk about what was going to happen, but... Unfortunately, there's a different plan. A couple things going on. My health has not been great this year. You went through a bout with cancer some time ago. Yeah, 2011. I mean, the real the real genesis would be, you know, you look at Tape Op Con back in 2001 and, you know, the impetus for that being Tape Op being, you know, the new kid on the block magazine. We were all very excited about it, which we still are. We all love Tape Op. You know, the recording industry at the time was just coming into this sort of DIY and there was this exciting thing of like, oh, the... The bigger studio system is now, you know, a smaller independence are getting a chance to compete. You know, that whole time frame we had there from, you know, 2001 on for a good, what, almost a decade seemed like it felt pretty good that way. Yeah. Doing this conference was always difficult. We did. We were never without our challenges. We didn't almost have a venue in year two when the guy we booked in Portland double booked us. Somehow we survived finding a venue at the midnight hour and moved forward. Uh, Probably our biggest impediment was Katrina, obviously. We were all set to have a permanent home in New Orleans with a great theater and a great hotel and really build momentum and, you know, have something we thought could be sort of a South by Southwest style event that, you know, was on your calendar with incorporating music and the conference. And my original idea, which I pitched to Larry and John way back when, was this idea of more of a peer-to-peer sharing experience, like a real-time magazine like Tape Op is. We started out that way first year, as you know, because you were there, a small and intimate Steve Albini keynote speaker, a lot of fun. 
as we grew, you know, the first thing we realized in the next year in Portland was we needed to add, I thought we needed to add the workshops because the way the attendees felt like, well, they love the big touchy feely stuff, but they still wanted someone to tell them what buttons to push in on an 1176. So in 2002, when we brought the workshops in, I always say the big aha moment that year was going to see Wes show do the acoustics workshop. And everyone was asking Frank questions because he was the carpenter. Studio owners don't necessarily know their way around a hammer and a screwdriver. I do. I'm a tradesperson, so I didn't think twice about this. I knew how to square off something with a tape measure. But to see a bunch of people standing around learning how to actually measure and cut wood properly, that was the next aha moment for the following year. So when we, when I met John Carden and we went down to New Orleans, we decided to start adding more hands-on stuff. That was the first year of the Potluck Studio, for example. Right. Uh, that was a lot of fun. We all learned a lot from that. And then Katrina came, and I didn't know where I wanted to go. I know I didn't want to go search all over the country again. It was actually Brad Lundy who said do it in Tucson, and so I researched Tucson, and I really wanted to do it downtown. The hotel I could probably use was not up to speed. So we ended up finding the El Conquistador, which everybody ended up loving. So we were there in 06 and 07, and we switched. We still were doing the late May, early June time frame, which was still running into some resistance because of – the scheduling of other trade shows and we were still trying to take the bulk of the money from the attendee and not so much from the sponsors and exhibitors i kept the exhibitor rate really low and i was really trying to get the engineers to pay because i always reasoned that if the independent engineer studio owner was carrying the lion's share of the cost then we could stay pure to not be beholden to anybody politically Right. I mean, it's right. kind of like a lobbyist thing, right? If you take a bunch of money from a lobbyist, you're going to have to probably do something in their favor when you become the legislator. So I was trying to do that. Tucson actually enabled us to make a little money because we were back in our hometown and we didn't have a lot of the travel expenses. My own mistake was probably thinking I should go back to New Orleans in 2008 because I wanted to support the community that I felt we had really come close to. And I felt like the city needed a shot in the arm economically because the whole sit country had turned against New Orleans post-Katrina, and I would listen to sports talk, and I'd hear people saying, like, they should just blow up the Superdome, and why do people live there? And I just couldn't believe that we were talking about, you know, one of the most important cities in this country musically was being summarily dismissed. So hindsight being 2020, maybe it was a little bit of hubris, but let's go back to New Orleans. Well, we couldn't go back to the Fairmont, and we couldn't go back to the Orpheum. Orpheum still to this day, by the way, it's still not open. So we looked at the Sheraton, we chose the Sheraton, and I really thought we were going to be big that year, and we should have been big that year. So I built the program that was crazy ambitious in 2008. And that's when we first started a relationship with Sweetwater, 100%. We had three working studios, 36 meetings, seven or eight main panels. I mean, we really went for it. I think we had over 100 exhibitors, but it was a behemoth. I walked away from a $95,000 food and beverage bill with the Sheridan that I ended up on the hook for. So I lost a lot of money in 08, which I worked really hard to get out from underneath, which I'm happy to say I am out from beneath, but it wasn't fun. You walked away from that bill because the money just didn't come in to cover it. Well, I had signed a two-year deal thinking, you know, get a better deal, right? 08, 09. But it became painfully apparent to me in 08 that the the economy was not going to support us then. You know, really, 08 was a bad year. Yeah, it was a very bad year. So... I just took my lumps and like basically that I'm putting potluck down at this point in time, we changed the name to potluck economy because it's a double whammy. When I lost 
tape op support, that was really tough because we had to rebrand and that's a tough rebranding. And tape op was really great as a, as a sponsor for the name, but it, the participation was really more us. We were doing it more on our own. The magazine was helpful, but it was still an awkward fit. I don't think politically we were in line with each other and there was some tension between us. So I, I was, you know, when, when Larry and John said they didn't really want to do it anymore, and I understand they, they had to focus on what matters and that's the magazine. And we all could feel something happening. You know what I mean? Like we didn't know what, but we could all feel it. And 08 really brought that home and we got nailed fuel expenses going there and we got charged. I got a, like a over $2,000 extra bill for bringing everything in. I decided to try to use a freight company to help out the exhibitors. And that really was the year that it became like, all I'm doing at this point in time is running around trying to satisfy all these people that are now really doing more of the work, which was kind of more of the sponsors, exhibitors. And it really was starting to get frustrating because I felt like the core mission of taking care of the attendee was getting somewhat way late. So when I put it down and walked away, I didn't know I was going to get sick. I didn't know Karen was about to go through breast cancer. So my wife gets breast cancer in 2009, 2010. And you got, and you got what kind of cancer? I get head and neck cancer that's officially diagnosed in 2011, but the symptoms were really hitting me end of 2010. So I was just out for 2011. And I never thought I'd do the conference again. And, and honestly, I was a pretty bitter person about the whole experience because I really felt like when I walked away from New Orleans that, you know, I took this huge hit and really no help and, you know, oh, well, you know, and I felt bad too, because I felt like, you know, here I've got these people, my friends and feel bad walking away with all these companies that want to support this thing. But, you know, nobody actually complained because I really think they all knew the economy was as bad as it was for those years. So there wasn't any impetus to do it because I don't think anyone had the money. So getting sick, you know, we did a chip in campaign and huge amount of support from the community at large potluck community, the tape op community, the conference community. And that really made me feel like, okay, you know, maybe there is something here. Maybe we should still get together. And so once again, I was like, okay, well, this is a good time to get back together. So when we brought it back in 2012, it went pretty well. Everyone was happy to be back. It was somewhat small again, but everyone really felt good about seeing each other. I enjoyed 2012. 2013, we said, well, let's see about continuing. And I thought that's when the Casita thing started to take off. And we saw this new model forward of sort of the hybrid of the potluck studio we used to put on is now being conducted as mini versions and manufacturers now have more skin in the game because they're actually contributing the lion's share of the money. So it's morphing into more of where the manufacturers and sponsors are having to do more of the work, but in order for them to do more of the work, I got to bring in the attendees to justify what they're doing. Well, to bring in the attendees, we're like, well, we're going to chop the attendee price down from, you know, we used to be, remember we were like 350 back in the day, right? Oh yeah. You know, 350 for three days. Remember? Yeah. I was like, and you could get in a little cheaper, but that was pretty reasonable. I thought that didn't work. So now we're like, Hey, 35 bucks. That's quite a discount. Um, <laughs> but let's see if we can get, you know, more people. Well, the weird part is you'd think in this era of social networking, that this would be the perfect time that you would just see attendance go because you have all these ways to now reach people. Instead, what we're finding is that people are reached too much. They're distracted. They're not focused. They're not you're not able to pin them down. There's too many things coming at them. We're so distracted right now. And while we've been so distracted, a funny thing happened to our business. It melted away. And I'm sitting here going into 2015, looking at my own studio. And I've always felt that as a studio owner, Wave Lab, being an independent studio, mid-sized studio, working with local bands and 
national, international acts, finding that niche for people who they want to make a record, but they don't have tons and tons of money. So we're operating in that, you know, anywhere from 2000 to 15,000, depending upon label, no label, whatever. I mean, we knew how to make records cheap and we can spend time. We can go fast, whatever. Just talk to us. But even that starts shifting to where all of a sudden I'm looking at our calendar going, we have no work. We have no work. What the hell's going on? So I start doing my due diligence. I start asking my fellow engineers and they're like, yeah, we're, we're not getting any work either. And I just feel like in 2015, something's happened, something shifted. And I don't know if it's everyone now going to home recording or there's no budgets for recording because there's no money from labels. There's no income for the artists now. Their money is so tight that recording is becoming a luxury and many people are opting now for doing it themselves and they can do it themselves because the very thing we trained over the last few years has enabled people to learn how to do it. And the manufacturers have made such amazing equipment that let's face it, a desktop studio is completely viable now. We both know that. Oh yeah. I mean, an Apollo and plugins for mixing, what do you really need? You know what I mean? Good pair of monitors, know your room. Do you need tons and tons of outboard gear and a patch bay and all these things now? So you're sitting around when you have an investment in hardware equipment where the plugins have equaled them, if not better. So now you're competing against the thing that's ephemeral. I can't, I'm competing against a zeros and ones. I'm competing against a widget and that widget can be shaped and changed and improved and made better. And, you know, you get excited about it, but you know, my LA-2A is still my LA-2A back there. Right. And we're at a place where the entire recording industry, I feel has hit, a really bad position because the perfect storm of lack of income for our artists driving them to seek alternative ways to record because of the costs have created too much competition, which is backed up by the fact that you now have so many people coming out of schools. And I'm not sure what we're all doing, because as far as I can tell, all anyone's looking to do now is to figure out a way how to do it themselves at home, with less money, less gear. It's, it's gotten strange. So for that reason, as I was going into 2015 with Potluck, I kind of started, to, I was feeling like this doesn't feel right. It didn't feel, it started not feeling right to me, I don't know, back in October. And I tried to move forward. But the thing is, I have this wealth of knowledge now of doing this this long. So I feel like all the lessons I learned, if I repeat those mistakes again, then I'm not really getting it. And so I think I look at this and I say, well, 2015, not feeling right. The few things I've put together, I've already kind of backtracked on me. And the sense I'm getting from the people I'm talking to is they're all in the same boat. And yes, I could probably go and raise tons and tons of money and from all these great sponsors and exhibitors. But if I don't deliver the bodies, why would they give me the money? And I'm not optimistic we're going to deliver the bodies because everyone's sitting on the fence like they were in 08 because they can feel their personal economies are tough. Almost everybody will tell you, I really want to do it, but I can't afford it this year. All of us need to circle the wagons and figure out a way to kind of take care of ourselves first and then see how we can branch back out into the world. And to that end, taking care of yourself means you shouldn't give me your money right now because I can't deliver. I just can't. It's good that, that you're coming on the show to be frank with the audience because I think, you know, a lot of people, while they were excited about it, I mean, the reality is, is like you say, I mean, it's a stretch for many people. The plane flight and and just where we're at with the economy, we st we still aren't you know going gang gangbusters financially. No. no, and we're like I said, I can't ask you know if you say to somebody, you know, even if I put just put myself at what I charge 
and I can even take me down to, you know, the rate that's like the lowest rate. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm giving up income and spending money because, and what's happening is all the people who I would like to get every, the first wave of people I've been reaching out to, they're all like, I got gigs. And people we've we've been able to count on can't come. Yeah. You're talking about the high profile people. High profile because they need, they have gigs and they're the same boat. So even the big boys and girls can't afford to not take that job. Yeah. They got to work. They don't know. None of us, no one wants to admit this, but none of us really know what our next job is because we're not sure our artists actually are going to have money for another record. And I can't find anybody who's going to argue with me and tell me it's different because you talk to any band and any manager and any record label right now, and everyone is just going like, ah. Yeah. So we have to take a break. We need to, we need to take a break. This industry is going to have to find its bottom, and then it's going to have to find a way back forward. When it finds a way back forward, maybe that new model will enable us to get together to all learn what the new model is. But I don't want to have a conference that sit around and talks about how to optimize your bands with Kickstarter. I don't think that's a solution. I don't want to sit around and talk about how high res is going to save the industry. Clearly it's not, you know, like surround sound was going to save us. I'm sorry. It's just not going to happen. This is the one thing I want to put in here and what really was the aha moment for me. I teach, I teach at a community college. I've been teaching now since 2007. The difference between the student coming in to to learn from 2007 to 2015 is radical. And it's not the same hunger or what they're looking for. It's completely different. Every one of these kids now is looking for a shortcut. They don't, they think there's some fast way in, they can just put this together and they're going to go right to the top. So we've created a self-entitled level of delusion that quite honestly, I don't know how we're going to be able to push back on because the industry is perpetuating that because all they're doing is glorifying sort of no talented nasal voice, bad singing. And I actually had one of my students very upset because he was told that auto-tune is now the industry standard. How is that possible? And I always just harken back to what Steve Albini said at that first keynote about how beware of industry standards because, you know, we all thought that gated tom-tom sound was an industry standard too. (laughs) Remember that? Remember when he talked about that? He says, you know, decades from now, we'll be looking back at the music of the 90s and we'll, we'll be laughing at every song that had a filtered, you know, vocal breakdown in it. You know what I mean? So when are we going to, will we hopefully look back on this era and laugh at, you know, how we went nuts with auto-tune and kind of killed music enjoyment? Because to me, what's going on is as we do these more false things, you're really messing with my brain and how I hear. And I'm, I'm not comfortable with any of it. I don't like what we're doing to our senses. I really don't. And I think recording is losing its soul in the name of technology. Let me ask you about a message to those who potentially may have registered and those who may have potentially registered and bought plane tickets. You know, we talked on the phone before we got on Skype about the possibility of if a few people happen to have bought tickets and they show up, is there a possibility that, that there could be a recording workshop at Wave Lab? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I did the same thing in 2009. I was never 100% definitive that it wasn't going on, and I kind of dangled out there potentially something in Tucson and actually a few people showed up and we ended up having a private session here at the studio and we, we did fine. So yes, if, you've, if you want to come to Tucson and you bought a plane ticket, um, we got two options. You can get really angry at me and harangue me and tell me, you know, I'm a jerk and somehow I owe you. Uh, or you can say, well, golden opportunity. I took the time off. I still want to go. We'll hang out. We'll have fun. I don't even know where I stand with the hotel. I have to go up and tell the hotel, this is not going to be fun. I have a contract. I had a long-term contract. I'm about to, once again, jump into a big mess. Now, that being said, this is one thing I do want to point out. I signed a long-term contract. 
I had signed a five-year contract. I wanted, I believe in it that much, which I don't know any people who take that kind of a risk. So I, that's how much I believe in the conference. I am not going up to the El Conquistador and telling them it's over, over. I'm instead tell them what I tried to tell them at the beginning of this year before they kind of pushed me in doing this year is that I really felt 2015, we should probably take a year off. And some people have even said, maybe we should do it every other year. And I've thought about that because maybe that does make sense. Maybe we all can't afford to do it every year, but maybe every other year might make sense. So I'm not saying that we're done because who knows, 2016, things rebound, 2017, we find a way forward. This whole streaming thing gets solved, artists, whatever the new label paradigm is, or someone figures out a way to keep musicians making money. If musicians can make money, they'll probably still need to record. If they still need to record, we probably all might see this economy get a little bit better for us. So I'm not saying that we're done, but I am saying that whatever we do, it's time for another change. Okay. And something has to be reinvented. So either we're taking this thing back, you know, down the road to say, no, we want this to be our conference again. Everyone's willing to pay the premium amount of money to, you know, have a truly group educational experience with us running a potluck studio again where everyone's involved, you know, or we're going to this, you know, we're going back to, you know, oh, we're going to find a new way to let big, big time sponsors fund this whole thing and you'll all just show up. And then at that point in time, it gets a little funny, you know what I mean? It's like, it, it just remains to be seen. And I'm, I'm with you on a lot of this stuff, but the, the, the message today is, is uh, the conference may be off for 2015. That doesn't mean it's off for the future. And if you're going to show up to Tucson, uh, there may be a recording workshop that could uh, be there for you in lieu of the conference. I'm, I'm happy to put that together. And of course, my email address is still on our website. I feel like our role at this point in time is I have to figure out how to re-empower my local music scene. If I can re-empower my local music scene, perhaps the rising tide will float the boats. You know, because even right now, I, I feel like my, my friends need that help. We lost all of our events in Tucson with this recent construction. We don't have any of our music shows or award shows. We don't have our outdoor festivals because we built the streetcar and we killed our outdoor venues. So now we're at a place where we, I'm like, we need this back. Because I don't know any other way. And I've been talking to a lot of other people, too. It seems like that's what we all have to do. A lot of people I'm talking to is like, well, I'm going to circle the wagons and figure out how to help my local scene. If I can elevate my local scene, maybe we can then see some some benefit out of that. I think that's a very important thing. Work on your local scene. It's just like get your own house in order mm-hmm. in order for all of us you know, to benefit. Everybody wants to do something, but I don't think we all know what it is. I think we're going to have to let this industry just sort of find its way forward. I believe that the music industry will survive as a new new model, but that new model has to become similar to what we've seen a Netflix model or an HBO model or what the aggregators had to do in the video world. So if you look at HBO, when it came along, it was just an aggregator. All it did was it took existing product, regurgitated it back to you for a fee because you never saw that movie. Right. Right. It's like, oh, that's kind of cool. But after you'd seen 16 candles 50 times, they realized, gee, we're not going to keep subscribers. So we need to be more innovative. So they brought sports programming in. Then they started making their own shows. Next thing you know, they're a juggernaut. Right. I mean, HBO is a power. Right. They are a production company. Netflix now makes productions. Why does Netflix? They don't make them, but they buy them. Why does Netflix need exclusive content? To keep people subscribed. To keep people right? subscribed. I mean, House of Cards is one of the main reasons I stay hooked on Netflix. 
Okay, so when does the streaming aggregators, iTunes or any of these, at one point wake up and go, well, we're now in competition with all these other platforms, so how do we separate ourselves from the pack? We need exclusives. So when do they start signing artists to exclusive development deals where only those artists can be heard on their street? Well, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, I know that when I had my studio, I know Keith Urban did a, an exclusive iTunes session, and that content was exclusive you know, to them. You, you couldn't get it anywhere else. And I don't know if that does or doesn't work because of how the consumer wants such freedom of choice. So I, it's what I don't understand. It's like in the video world, we're all willing to parse this and figure out what we'll give money to, whether it's Hulu or HBO or it's Netflix. But then I also know that eventually this will come to a screeching halt. We're all not really honest about this anyway, because people trade logins. You know what I mean? So we're already pirating that too. It seems like human nature is such that at this point in time, it's like, well, if I can see it, it's mine. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, oh, someone dropped a wallet on the ground. No one's looking. Do I return it? Do I keep it? Is there money in it? You know, the internet's created this weird place where it's like, I know this is wrong, that I probably shouldn't just grab this, but eh, what the hell? Cracked plugin, cracked software, stolen song, stolen video, you know, no big deal. So it's kind of like we can point this sort of like individual selfishness has equaled a steady erosion of our whole industry. And I don't know how to stop it. So there's a lot of reasons for us to have a conference to talk about all these things, but there's no money in it. So I'd be happy to hold people at Tucson. We can have a nice time. We can carry on and talk. We'll have a nice little party. We can all, maybe we're planning a seize to rebuild this thing. I don't know. You know, I like to say, I'm not done. I believe in the mission. I just don't believe that we have the juice and none of us have the juice to support it right now. So it's unfair to ask people to give up their hard-earned money right now. And that's why I'm taking a step back. I don't feel comfortable asking for anybody's money because they need it. All right. So uh, we're about out of time. So uh, your email is on the Potluck Conference website. So if somebody yeah. has bought a ticket, they can actually contact you and say, hey, Craig, I bought a plane ticket and I registered I'm coming to your studio. What can we do? Yeah, I mean, we'll do. I mean, we can we'll get a band, we'll record. Um, I would tell everybody if they're interested in something, a great event, Gear Fest, believe it or not, in Fort Wayne, Indiana, coming up in the middle of June is an awesome event. They have really good workshops. They have really good panels. They have great facilities. Um, Gear Fest at uh, Sweetwater? Yeah, they get a lot of big names out, and the deals on equipment is incredible. It was somebody I would hope down the road we could kind of partner up with, but they, when you go there, you'll see what happens when a truly dedicated company puts on a uh, weekend of uh, like an AES meets potluck meets trade show. It's pretty impressive. And I went last year and I don't know if I'll go again this year. I'd like to, it's just a matter if we can afford it. Um, but you know, if you're in the neighborhood anywhere, you can reach it. It's, it's a great event. It's free. Well, buddy, I, I was hoping that uh, we would uh, have a little more, um, upbeat conversation about the conference when you were going to come on, but, uh, that's okay. Too, it's Me all about, <clears throat> the podcast focuses on the reality of things. You can't get much more real than this. Can you? No, you can't. No, you can't. Thanks for coming on and talking about this. And I'm going to, people can call me or email me, whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm not, I'm not hiding from this thing. So if they need to get in touch, go to potluckconference.com and reach out. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right, man. I'll be in touch. Thanks, Matt. Okay. See ya. Okay, there you have it. Uh, the word from 
Craig Schumacher about the Potluck Audio Conference. And as you heard there, obviously, if you bought a plane ticket, there is a backup plan for you. And if you haven't, then great. That's fantastic. But uh, it's a great conference. And I cross my fingers that, you know, the stars align. And next year in 2016, we can we can all be having the conversation about actually going. And uh, hey, we'll deal with it. We'll, as 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 it comes, and we'll cross that bridge when we get to it, as they say. So there it is. All right. So coming up here right now, Mr. Tim Palmer talking to us on Skype from Austin, Texas, here on Working Class Audio. Hey, hey, how are you? I'm good. I was just <laughs> just watching you on uh, Pensado's place. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Hey, thanks for doing this. No problem. Thanks for asking me. Well, I got to give you the official welcome to the uh, Working Class Audio podcast, and thanks for being here. And I, you are the inaugural Brit to be on the oh, show. I'm honored. I feel a little bit of a sham because I'm actually um, an American citizen now. So <gasps> I, I know but, that. I know but, you're uh, in Austin. But um, I'm a dual. I'm a dual. I have dual citizenship, so <laughs> I, can, I can switch over when I need to. Right. When I leave when I leave the house, you see, I'll be saying "yarl" and wearing a cowboy hat. And <laughs> you have your boots on. <laughs> yeah, I've got a truck. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. No, no, definitely, it's funny. Yeah, I'm definitely the Brit in Austin, but um, I'm happy that way. Rupert Neve lives in uh, Austin. He does. He? he lives just down the road in Wimberley, which, as you probably have seen, was hit pretty hard by the uh, the flooding. Um, but I don't think he was affected. Neither was um, Blue Rock Studios, which is also very close to there. Yeah, absolutely devastating what's going on in Texas right now. It's terrible. I actually uh, went to visit Wimberley the day of the floods. I had no idea what was going to come. And we had lunch and uh, we walked down to the river and the kids were paddling in the water and it was a lovely day. And then the rain began and I said, look, let's let's head for home. It looks like it's going to be another rainy day in Texas. So as we drove back, the rain really picked up. And by the end of the evening, there were about 300 houses missing from that stretch of river that we were just happily paddling in, you know. Crazy stuff. Can you imagine owning a studio and having your life invested in it and having it wash away? I know it's, it's, you know, what's interesting is as well is because, you know, living in Texas, I sort of, one of the reasons I moved here was because my wife wanted to be away from California with its earthquakes because she always had this fear, especially when we had kids. So um, we always thought that Austin was sort of avo- avoided most of the natural disasters, which it does really. But, uh, you know, in the last couple of years, um, we had, a, 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 as you know, a spate of fires. And when I built uh, my studio, um, there was a small fire in our neighborhood and I wandered up the drive and saw the fire trucks and I said, oh, you, you know, I see you've, you've got this covered. And the fireman said, well, not necessarily. And I said, well, surely you're all here. I mean, you can see the fire, you're all here. And he said, no, these things are going to spread pretty quickly. And uh, he came and knocked on the door about 20 minutes later and said, gather all your stuff, you need to get out of here. Oh, wow. And I was, I, I didn't really know how what to make of it, really. It was such a strange feeling you know so i ran into the studio grabbed a couple of guitars the hard drives the actual computer itself just a couple of personal things and um, the kids ran into their rooms and grabbed a few things and we headed off and couldn't come back for a couple of days and it it really was touch and go you know because the fire actually got very close to the home and I don't know whether my insurance would have been adequate enough to cover everything in my studio but it was pretty scary and you know very weird time i live in northern california in 1989, we had the Loma Prieta earthquake, which happened mm-hmm. during the World Series. And uh, yeah. yeah, it's it's a frightening situation because you can't escape. Mm. It's everywhere. It's, you know, your best bet is to seek coverage and make sure you don't get hit in the head by something. And, and yeah. hopefully you'll be good. But 
It's funny because as I left the house, I looked at the lounge and I thought, am I really, really saying goodbye to this house? No, surely not. This can't be real. And I, I walked past the fridge and I opened the fridge and I thought, I'll just take a couple of bottles of wine. So I put these couple of bottles of wine. And when we were all in this house, there was a, a, a sort of area where we were all put with our, everyone sitting there with their animals and kids. And I said, anybody fancy a glass of wine? And they're like, that figures that the Brit would think about the wine as he left the home. Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> Since we're talking about Texas and, and the house and the studio, what drove your decision to Austin, Texas specifically? Well, it was a combination of things and most definitely the change, the changes that have happened to our industry over the last few years were a big part of that decision. I mean, once I'd made the step to not be working in traditional professional studios a few years back, um, which was a scary transition, I must say, when I first built my own room, after so many years of just turning up into a studio that was, you know, you know how much they were, $1,200 a day or whatever, and just listening to the monitors, get the tech in, this isn't working, that's not working, you know, everything being done for you, assistance, actually making the, the step over to owning your own place and being in charge of your own gear and making sure the acoustics of the room were right was a, a very scary step for me. The one thing that it did bring, which I loved, was the opportunity to not be held hostage by budgets because obviously budgets were getting smaller and the first thing that was a conflict of interest in my opinion was the idea of the fund you know in the past you'd be asked to mix something and you'd get a fee to do that and the studio and the costs were dealt with by the label it was not really your problem and then once the fund was introduced they would come to you and say look we have three thousand four thousand whatever the figure is to get this done he had to start haggling with studios, which is not a nice place to be put into that situation anyway. Mm. You know, I've got to do this mix. How much can you give me the studio for, etc.? Then you were forced with the, you know, the idea of you're working on a song. You feel that you want to spend a bit more time. But as the day progresses, you think, hang on a minute. If I have to pay for another day of studio time, I actually won't really make any money. I hated that that conflict of interest right there. So owning your own studio, of course, that was eradicated immediately. You know, you work on a song as long as you like. Um, sometimes if you only have a couple of mixes to do that week, you could be spending three three days on a song, work for a few hours, go home, see the family, work on the vocals for another day. And I, it was a wonderful experience. I'd never ever had that. I mean, for so much of my career, you know, you really were held hostage by studios, even with weekends. I, my wife would always be like, can we, can we, uh, you know, do something this weekend? And I'd say to her, look, you know, the studio won't let me take the weekend off. Otherwise, we have to break all the equipment down and they'll they'll charge the band. If I take Sunday off, they'll charge the band for the Saturday anyway. And this poor band have only got, you know, they've only just started and, you know, they don't really want to be paying twelve hundred dollars to sit around doing nothing. So I always felt like you had to work on Saturday. So for most of my career, I've only ever had Sundays off. So, you know, getting my own place has been really nice in that respect to be able to, you know, take a break you know, go and do something different for an hour and then return and continue working because I think it's always been invaluable um, to be able to step away and then return and then get that fresh perspective. I think that's something that's very uh, important. And now it's so much easier to do. It also seems to provide a better uh, work-life balance. Uh, do you, you have kids? I heard you mention yeah. kids. Okay. Yes, and uh, you're married with kids. And, you know, I, I totally agree. I'm in the same position where I mostly, I mix from home and it allows me to spend time with my kids and my wife and take a break. And Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so the, the, the reason for Texas 
was the next step on was I rented a, my first studio was in North Hollywood. I rented a, a space that was part of American studios in North Hollywood. And, you know, it was still expensive, it, well, not, not that much, but it was still, you know, fifteen, sixteen thousand dollars $16,000 a year. And I thought to myself, why would I do that? Why wouldn't I just build my own place at home? And my home in California was quite small. And um, Texas gave me the opportunity to come to a place that was a musical community. That was obviously the checklist, musical community, something that wasn't too expensive, something of, away from natural disasters and good schools. And, you know, generally speaking, I'd been here for South by Southwest and always had a good time. So we came out for a few weekends and uh, I was able to afford to buy a much bigger home here than I could afford in California and be able to convert uh, a double garage um, and do it properly with a designer and make it into a little mixed room. And that's the way that I've been working for the last six years in Texas. And it's, it's been great. I mean, you know, obviously this would never be possible without the things that the internet has provided us with the way that files can be transferred and, and the way that the gear has changed so much. I mean, the idea of having a studio at home for the first part of my career wouldn't have been possible. A studio was between three quarters of a million and a million dollars. But now, of course, with Pro Tools and all the other stuff that we have to work with, it is possible and there's no excuse in quality. Um, I don't feel like I've had to compromise quality-wise. And yeah, I've got all these pluses that have come with having my own room. So I feel pretty blessed that I have this place. You know, I'm very happy about it. That's great. And in terms of, you know, rough costs of build-out, if you What's the ballpark of what you spent on your build-out? My gear I've sort of built up over a while. So I use, I know it's a cliche, but, you know, I try to sort of have a hybrid setup. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not afraid of the digital domain. I feel I've got a handle on it now. I know how to control it to the way that I want it to sound. I think it's an excuse when people feel that they can't manage it. That's not really my problem. I think you can manage it and you can be very creative within it. But I still, because I'd spent so long in the analog world, <laughs> I still have a setup where I have 24 Tone Lux outputs here and summing and some outboard EQ, some Tone Lux EQs and a, and a, a George Massenberg external EQ and an, an, out, uh, an Alan Smart SSL. So everything is broken out um, into individual kick drum, snare drum, backing vocals, you know, everything's there. So it's sort of a hybrid of the two. The gear is obviously a big part of it, and I feel good about my signal path. Um, I think it sounds really good um, as a starting point. The build-out of the room, I've done it a couple of times now, and I usually start off with a double garage space. Mm -hmm. Texas is, is good for that. Yes, it is. You can you can find many homes that have three garages, four garages. So my wife has a garage that she can keep for the bikes and the car and stuff, and then I take the other one. That's always mine. and. I guess I spent on the build out about between thirty and forty thousand dollars. The gear—that's not obviously not including the gear—and you know that's that's not too bad because I hope to stay in this room for quite an amount of time. I could have spent a lot more, and um, there's no doubt about it. I mean, there's you could you could spend you can keep going. I didn't float the floor or anything like that, but you know the results that I've had in my studio have you know been great, and I haven't felt the need to go any further. I mean, a lot of what I believe is that. You know, the fact that you have your own room now and you learn that room at the beginning, as I said, it's a little bit scary. But once you know that room and you have become aware of frequencies and how they work in that room and you've checked it in other places, you've checked it in the car, you've had things mastered. Then once you're familiar with that room, you're actually in a better state than you ever were in the old days of going to different studios every week. Because your ability to learn a room that well, if you're constantly changing, was, was tough. I feel now more confident that when I EQ something that I know exactly what it'll 
people sound like elsewhere. I feel stronger about that now than I ever did when I'd wander into Electric Lady and, you know, fly into New York and start mixing the next day. Because quite often you'd get a surprise when you brought it home. You know, you'd listen to the mixes back at home and think, wow, I had no idea that there was that frequency in the low end. But when you have <laughs> your own room, of course, that stuff's all gone. And that's great. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of bonuses in, to having your own space. And it's continually with most of the, the guests on Working Class Audio, it is a dominating trend, I would say, that people have their own spaces and then go out to other places to track. These days, right. are you... You mix quite a bit. You've mixed several records I enjoy quite a bit. Your role in production and or tracking these days, is is that pretty minimal compared to your yeah, mixing? it is. It's almost gone away, only occasionally. I mean, I, I, do miss, I do miss it at certain times. But the role of the mixing engineer has changed so drastically that I feel very fulfilled in mixing because mixing is about production now anyway. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say that is that obviously our industry is not based around huge amounts of cash and huge royalty statements anymore. You can have a very successful album with a top 10 album with less than 100,000 albums. So, you know, labels are not handing out huge budgets to make records anyway. And a lot of artists are forced to make their records a lot quicker, making compromises and not being able to experiment as much as we did in the 80s and 90s, that's for sure. They're making them in studios that may not be as... as well equipped as we had in the 80s and 90s with microphones maybe the even the engineers and producers a lot of them are less experienced than some of the people so the mix stage whereas in the 80s and 90s you sort of in many ways stayed fairly true to what they'd done because these people had quite often spent weeks crafting this um, sound and how they wanted it to work nowadays you know bands often get in there and get it done to the best of their ability in a short amount of time with a small budget in a studio that they you know that can they can afford so when it comes to the mixing they're actually uh, i find most of the bands and things are actually very grateful if you say look i'll i'm going to try and take this to the next level i've been a producer for many years i hear a few things that could be improved I'll, I'll add them for you. And if you don't like them, then obviously we'll mute anything that you don't like immediately. Mm -hmm. But it gives me the opportunity. I do this all the time now is, you know, you'll listen to what they've done and think, okay, well, that's really great what's going on in the verse. But I think that it would sound really nice if we doubled that verse guitar with a sort of slightly tremolo Led Zeppelin type phasey guitar on the right and just tuck it quietly. So I'll just chuck a little guitar on maybe the uh, chorus comes in a little later than I thought, maybe try and edit well, as far as the arrangement, maybe add some percussion, maybe they didn't get enough time and there's a couple of places where I feel that the vocal could be improved. I might use a tiny bit of auto-tune, although I'm very careful with all that stuff. And basically sort of see yourself as the sort of producer at the end of the line who can sort of bring it up maybe instead of just a regular 10%, where it's a lot of mixing can be, you can bring it up a lot more because you're actually adding musical parts. Uh, maybe you're adding an extra part in a, key, in a chorus. And these are things that, you know, go across every set of speakers. You know, you're going to hear a musical part wherever you are. So you are in, in a position to really take things up to another level. And that's why I find mixing so enjoyable now is people are very open-minded to that. And it makes it a very creative time. Uh, whereas some projects that you do and productions that are sent to you you're not going to mess with them that's not that's not your job as a mixer and others it really can be i mean i mix a lot for a producer in los angeles called larry klein larry does work with good sized budgets and he uses fantastic musicians um you have people like um 
you know, when you have Booker T playing Hammond organ and Dean Parks playing guitar, et cetera, et cetera, and all these great players, then suddenly when you're mixing, you, you, you stay well away yeah. from it. That's not your job. These people have, have got it just the way it needs to be. And your job is to bring the sound quality up and mix it as, as well as that you possibly can. And I find that I'm working a lot more with faders when I'm making music like that. When you're given a project where you need a lot of help, then you just get right in there, you know, and you can do a lot more. So, you know, the job changes every time. But as a mixing engineer, I do feel that now we're in a position to sort of, as I say, be a combination of a producer and a mixer at the same time. You're a guy that's come from the old school and you've dealt with the business in the past. How has that changed for you now in terms of if you need to I mean, let's say I'm in a band and I want to have you mix my record. Are you negotiating directly with the band? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Obviously, the there's no point in looking back to romanticizing too heavily in the past because mm-hmm. a lot of it's not going to be coming back. So I'm quite happy to move on. And there are many great things that have happened as well. I was very fearful of um, Pro Tools. And once I'd made that step into that world, I found that it was incredible what you could do. And I've loved it ever since. The one thing that the internet did was obviously make files like MP3 so people share them and we don't make any money off royalties anymore. That was a downside. But on the other hand, the technology gave us the ability to, A, send albums across the world in a couple of hours, mm-hmm. um, and, and B, obviously with the, the technology with Pro Tools, be able to make these mu- this music at home. So as far as being able to work with artists in a, in a way that was different to before, traditionally, you know, I would have, I still have the same manager. I've had the same manager for 30 years. Um, he would go into a label, meet the A&R staff, say what you've been working on, and hopefully you'll end up with a project to work on. Nowadays, um, through my website, through Facebook, even through Twitter, people will write to me, and it could be in New Zealand, um, South America, wherever. I do a lot of work in Russia, all sorts of places, and people will just write to you and say, hey, you know, here's our band, have a listen. And I will just directly respond to them and say, great, talk to them about it. And um, I find that now, because of all these changes, and because the price point has come down, I'm not out of range of, of any band, I don't think. The days of artists feeling that they can't get to producers and mixers on albums that they've seen i think are gone i think you can actually reach out to a lot of producers and mixers these days and they will they will mix for you you know do you find it's best to charge by the mix or do you charge for your day by day or for time based i do it i do it by the song um yeah i mean that's sort of how i've always done it i've worked on a couple of prog rock albums where you've opened it up and you thought hang on a minute that's that's eight and a half minutes and it's two completely different songs that have a slight transition in the middle. So <laughs> I'll, I'll say maybe this is actually two songs worth of work. That's the, that's about the only time it ever changes. But um, no, I charge, I charge just by the song. As far as w- when you were talking earlier about how you negotiate, it's very difficult because obviously you don't want to, as, as the producer or the mixer of a record, you don't want to come in with your bottom line too soon because um, one of the things that's different about the way music is funded is a lot of the time it, it, it's it's the band have raised the money themselves or sometimes they have a rich father or sometimes they've done a go fund me campaign. You don't really know where the money's coming from. And, you know, it's far better for you to say, uh, this is what I do anyway, is mm-hmm. ask them what the budget is to get it done um, and let them make the first move before you open your mouth, you know, because it can be quite surprising sometimes what people have got and, and, and quite disappointing what people have got another time. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. 
you obviously you're working with, uh, you, you'd mentioned on your Pensado's Place interview, you said, you, you know, with what the internet brings, you can work with bands, musicians from all over the world. Do you ever deal with, uh, you'd mentioned Russia, South America, do you ever deal in, in countries where there's a little bit of a language barrier? And, oh, yeah. and how do you get around that in terms of mixed changes and, and navigating? Well, as far that? as, it's, that's interesting. I mean, I'd, I'd actually done, you know, I used to go to Italy. I worked with um, a guy called Piero Palou, who's in a, a big rock band in Italy called Lip Fever. And I, I used to go to fly over to Italy. And, you know, now I don't need to do that because, of course, I've got my room. And I also worked with the band Him from Finland. Uh, they're a, a big sort of goth rock band. I've worked with them on many albums. So I, 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 in my history, I'd often work with bands from a lot of different places. But um, the language barrier thing has never been a problem to me within the music. Mm-hmm. Um, it's surprising how the music tells you where to go and how you know how the story should unfold and emotively it seems to make sense and a lot of the time they'll send you a lyric sheet um, with a translation so at least you know the gist of what the lyric is so you don't go too off base but the music and I find that the recordings essentially are are telling you uh, where to go I I mean I I always listen um, just as you called I was listening to rough mixes of a project I'm doing now rough mixes will tell you a lot about you know the overall sense of direction and it's so important to to be familiar with the rough mixes before you start driving and it's like getting in a car and just driving for the fun of it unless you know where you're going mm-hmm. um, you know it's just like randomly driving without a destination I enjoy the fact that um, you can work with these artists from different countries I mean yeah you're right in the sense that sometimes the mix changes the notes may be a little hard to uh, decipher yeah I remember I remember getting a mix uh, note saying that they wanted the mix to sound more like crystal skies uh, which I thought was quite interesting. Hmm. Um, <laughs> but generally, most of the time, you know, I know it's a, I always feel guilty about it because I, I really don't, I speak a little tiny bit of French, but I'm, I'm not very good with languages. And I always have felt guilty about that. But people from other countries speak bloody good English. And yeah. uh, I've never really had a problem, you know, in, you know, in Russia, in, um, in, in Finland. I mean, these people speak great English. And when they write it, it's, it's probably better than a lot of the American bands. Probably, yeah. From. <laughs> Probably. So it's never never turned out to be an issue. In the first part of my career, when the, when the music business was different and it was all major label things and big budgets and stuff, is that you know I found that there was a lot of compromise involved in what we were doing. A lot of people messing around with with um, um, stuff that they didn't shouldn't really been speaking about. A and R men that sort of would you know you'd have to make changes, and it was very frustrating to sort of make a change that you felt in your gut was wrong, but you had to do it because somebody at the label had said this. Nowadays, that's not happening so much, and that's a wonderful um, thing I think um, for for artists and for mixers and producers. Is like you said, we do have the opportunity to just go the whole way with something and 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 don't have to feel like we're compromising and it's not. Um, part of a, a big group decision because I mean mixing by committee to me never was for successful there's no there's no democracy in in rock and roll really I mean it's it's far more important to have that one true vision I think saying that of course I've always been very aware of the fact that this is not my record this is you know trying to make a record for the artist and um, that's been a, a, a an important sort of philosophy of my career is you know I'm here to try and deliver the the vision of the artist but now yeah you definitely can um i find mixing uh, the changes that you're making for artists are far more musical than some of the sort of changes that were being made for the sake of record companies before in the past mm-hmm. i mean i could tell you some horrendous stories of 
as A&R men um, through the years. That I'll tell you one that you'll find very amusing. Um, there was a project I was doing in the 80s, and the A&R man was fairly new to the game, and he came by and he said, can I hear what you've done so far? And I said, sure, I'll just have to quickly push up the faders and do a rough for you. And he said, that's fine. So he sat on the couch and I started pushing up faders. And as I sort of was trying to get a rough balance, I turned the descend on the snare and a bit of reverb came flying in and I heard him visibly get excited. He said, stop. And I said, what is it? And he said, what was that? And I said, that was reverb. And he goes, that's amazing. And I said, yeah, that's cool. So I carry on mixing and I get the guitars up and stuff. And he, and he stopped me again. And I said, what is it? And he said, listen, it may be a bit weird and maybe a bit of, uh, you know, a bit of shot in the dark, but have you ever tried that reverb on the voice? Oh. <laughs> and I said, I said to him, I'll, oh check, I'll check it out. And I think that poor guy thought that he changed the, few, the whole thing about record production at that point. I'll check this out. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm glad that those days are gone, that's for sure. And, and it's amazing because artists, because of Pro Tools and because of the fact that they have to do a lot of things for themselves, people are much more aware of the recording process now. And, you know, young kids know their shit, you know. You can't pull the wool over their eyes, that's for sure. You you have this this large track record of which to work from. So, say someone like me who has, I don't have the same track record as you. But I don't know how that would. I don't know why would that would affect anything though, really. I don't know. I guess I guess the, it's the names. I mean, I mean, if you look at your discography, you know, you see, oh, he's worked with Pearl Jam and Robert Plant and you too, yep. and you know, one would look at that and go, oh wow, well let's go with that guy, as opposed to. What differentiates you from somebody who doesn't have your same track record? Well, that what you just said is is what it's going to give you. I mean, your track record obviously is going to give you a better shot of landing the gig. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. If you've worked on some artists that they are already impressed by, sadly, of course, it doesn't really tell half the story because, as you know, uh, mixing is about a being able to do it and b finding yourself in a situation where you're mixing a great song. Mm -hmm. I mean, I say it in every time that anyone asks me, but the best cure for a bad mix is a great song, and and it is so true and if you're fortunate enough like i've been to work on a record that's contained some great songs then suddenly your mixing uh, seems to have improved um i remember before i worked on the u2 record um on all that you can't leave behind things had gone a little quiet and i began to sort of as we all do as producer engineers think wow things are getting a little quiet that's that's a bit worrying you know i wonder if wonder if i've sort of started to go down the slope on the other side and then somehow or other, oh, I tell you how it happened was I worked with, um, I worked on a Michael Hutchins after he died. And there was one song that Bono had sung on, on the record. And Bono heard the mix and called me up and said how much he loved it. And that's how I ended up working with U2. But after working with U2, it's amazing how suddenly uh, it was as if my mixing was suddenly back on form again. Even though I know that I hadn't changed what I was doing for years, I was just mixing with you two suddenly, and the songs were great. And that was the reason that the phone was ringing. Not really because my mixing had got any better. That's for sure. <laughs> I mean, you know, we're all we're we're all slaves to that. I mean, artists will look to that. But yeah, getting giving the opportunity from your track record is is, is what it'll get you. But once you're once you make the mix, most artists, I think, now will be very honest with you. They're not going to say, oh, man, it sounds great if it doesn't. Uh -huh. um, so, you know, the truth is that you still have to do a great job. And, and I really believe now more than, uh, more than before that in the climate that we're in, if you do great work and you're good to deal with, you'll have repeat clients 
and you know it'll just you'll just be able to keep moving forward and that's that's my goal is that I, I really do love to do what I do and I get scared at the idea of not being able to do that the way that the, the, the industry's changed it was important to adapt and it's important to embrace the, the the changes and and I think that social media and Twitter accounts and things are always important now because people are not reading credits on album sleeves the way they were and sitting on the floor looking at a big piece of art and reading where all the studios were like I did when I was young there you know that's not there they, they barely will ever see a credit so social media has to take that place for us we have to unfortunately blow your own trumpet a little bit and say hey look at this I've just been mixing this guy from France he's Bobby Bazzini and he's, he's biggest selling Canadian you have to get out there and say it and it's um, it's very un-British to sort of I was yeah and I, I, you know <laughs> some of my you know I, I sort of had to leave that behind that sort of um, thinking because you know what you know if you want to keep doing what you love to do then you've got to do it right that it's funny you say it's very un-British because I was thinking that it must be hard because it's it's the the Brits that I know are not hornblowers and or don't don't like to be i mean they'll do it if they have to of course but yeah well i think now they probably have to more than they ever did but it's you know you could do some great work and people not even know about it you know if you're dealing let's say with an independent band you meet there in texas or you know in austin and they want you to mix their record what is that process like versus in terms of financially speaking that versus say u2 i mean if u2 calls up obviously you're dealing with management yeah. And do they say, okay, this is the budget we have? Or do they say, what do you need? Well, if you're working with a major artist, once again, even nowadays, I find that the major labels, on, on the last projects that I've done on major labels, there's been about three or four records in the last year. And their budgets are small anyway. Mm. <laughs> it's not really that much different. You know, it's not like the major labels are making loads of cash. I mean, I did a record I uh, did three or four records last year for different uh, um, major labels, and none of them were coming up with huge amounts of money that are any different to any of the, the local bands. You know? And did you have to wait 30 days to get paid or 90 days? Well, yeah, you paid? do have to wait longer, whereas you get paid immediately from bands, yeah. yeah. i tell you another funny story. Is you get to be so involved in people's their, their album and their vision, and yet you actually don't actually see them. I think that's the weirdest <laughs> thing. Yeah. I did a record for a band called Polyphonic Spree, yeah, and they already have about 100 members in the band anyway. But when I came to mix it, I wanted to add quite a few things. And Tim, um, the vocalist, was after the first mix, he loved it. And I was so happy. And we carried on in that form. So I would just do exactly as I felt and send it to Tim for his comments. And the very first time that I met him, I spoke to him before South by Southwest. And I said, look, you know the single, you know the guitar part I played on the song? And he said, yeah. I said, do you, can, I, can I play that with you on stage? Um, I'll wear one of the robes because they all wear these robes. And I said, uh, um, I said, I, I'll, I'll put on a robe and I'll get up and I'll play. And, and that was the first time that I really met him was when I stepped onto the stage and played with the band. And, uh, and I think that's amazing, you know, in its own way, you know. It is. It's sometimes even with old friends who I haven't seen in ages and you continually talk with them on Facebook that when you finally do come uh, face to face with them, it's always like, Oh, it's so weird not to be interacting with you on Facebook. Here you are in real life. And and when it comes to clients, it's even it's even more complex because you you get to know them through email and Twitter and Skype and FaceTime, et cetera. 
It's it's an odd time we live in. Very yes. odd time. Um, something caught my attention that uh, once again, referring to your Pensados Place interview, uh, you were talking about uh, Pearl Jam and Ten, and this caught my attention only because I had noticed it. Uh, there was a remix done, was there not? It was yeah. And did you do the remix? No. Okay. And here's what stood out to me on the remix. It wasn't as spacious. It did not have the reverb. It did not have the characteristic sound that I recall the first time I heard that album. I'll be honest. I was a little like, why did this happen? Yeah. Well, the interesting thing about that is if you think of it in context with the history of the scene as such, was that when we made that record, um, you know, the band were there every morning and they signed off on every mix. And we had a really great time making that record. It was a real low pressure um, album. There was not a lot of expectation. It was a band that were growing and the labels sort of, in, I think in their heads were thinking, you know, it'll probably sell a few thousand records and keep the career path going up and up. So we mixed it with very little um, pressure. Can imagine what the pressure was like on the second album. That would be a whole different kettle of bananas. But but um, it was a very you know instinctive record to make. and. For me, I mixed it in in England, and I wasn't aware of the Seattle scene and the underground scene. I uh, I'd made a lot of rock records before that, and with the rock records, we basically were making still making big sounding records, big open drums, and you know reverb was not a dirty word at this particular point. Now, when the Seattle scene erupted, and after Pearl Jam came out, I think that the band heard like Nirvana and some of the other bands and thought that their record sounded a bit mainstream compared mm. to their contemporaries. And it, of course it did, but in a way it, it actually, I believe it actually really helped because radio at that time was making that big transition. And as you know, the whole metal, uh, hair metal rock sound just suddenly shut itself right down immediately. And we went into the new world of Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, all these bands just suddenly smashed everything that had come before them. And we left that sound behind and we left a lot of producers behind who were making that sound, I must point out, which is really hard for them too. Yeah. But the thing about the 10 album was that firstly in the band, there's Mike McCready. And I always thought, within such an alternative band, you've got a guy who's playing very traditional rock solos. That was sort of cool. And that made it very accepting to rock radio as well, because the guys who still liked a good guitar solo in their American rock band still got it. And the sound of the record was also not too uncomfortable for them because it still sounded big, a big low end. There was a lot of things going on to keep the interest. It wasn't a dry, grungy record. So as far as radio, it was a nice step slowly across to the new sound without being too harsh a change i think and it and i think it it really helped them but of course you know i i would have probably mixed the record differently but the band waited to to remix it and get the album that they wanted way too late that was the thing by the time they did that remix album we'd already gone through the cycle because as you know it just goes round and round we were already back into reverbs and delays and effects again which we're full into now people are not afraid of any effects now it's a, it's a nice creative time again but we're now back into that and then you know just before that there's this really dry remixed version of the 10 album and i think it was it makes the the old album sound more contemporary than ever i mean the old album now sounds more appropriate to what people want to hear than the new one um, yeah you know but as, as I said on the Pensados thing, I mean, you can you can look at your high school photo and you you can't go back and Photoshop your haircut. 
that's the haircut you had at that moment and that's the record that we made at that moment and it worked it worked really well and i think it it had a lot of um depth to it and excitement to it and we weren't afraid to sort of throw a reverse reverb in on even flow so you get the even flow you know we weren't afraid of just doing cool little things like that but you know once the uh the 90s kicked in i remember mixing records after that and people would come into the studio and the bands would be attending and they'd say hey man we love the mix can we just have the exact mix you've done but just kill all the reverbs and you'd be like okay that's 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 it and it was done for a while there your your story of the of the clueless a and r guy i'm sure he was devastated (laughs) yeah reverb's gone but i i i discovered that (laughs) (laughs) it's whenever i'm doing a mix i always find that those first uh that first mix with a new client is it's interesting because you got to find that what's the reverb sensitivity with this client it's like Mm -hmm. i had one guy who was he wanted it mixed 100% dry. And you get into that mindset. And then I went to the next album to mix, and I was stuck in that mindset and have, had it pretty dry. And the client was like, hey, man, it's too dry. Can we have some more reverb, some more cheese? And you're like, oh, yeah. right, right. I'm still in that old mindset. Yeah. It, it's it, certain people's sensitivities to it, like, you know, Pearl Jam feeling the way they did and yeah oh well you just don't know you just don't know what that sensitivity is especially when it's always for me like the first mix is is where you learn a lot um on a new project i mean you literally have to just follow your and i've always believed in following your instincts mix wise let the song tell you where to go and you know all that sort of stuff but you literally do everything that you think is right for that first mix and then the, the, the client or the artist or whoever it is you're working for will come through and you know at that point you'll look at the mix notes and you'll be able to get a sort of a much better sense of how the producer sees this record being and you can learn a lot from that first mix i find mm-hmm. but it's at, at, at some level though you know every song is a whole new story so you sort of have to go through it a little bit every time anyway you know it's, it's funny how you know you sometimes you can do a mix and the, the band will be like we don't want to change anything. And you're like, really? <laughs> Nothing? And then other times, you can do so many things to a song. You could be adding parts and putting, changing the arrangement and putting new guitars on. And, and you'll get comments from the band, and they'll all be about EQs on a hi-hat. And you think, what about all the new parts that are on your song? Did you know? <laughs> you know, I think there's a sort of, there should be an etiquette to the way, because I find that I respond really well to certain ways that people put things. Because mm-hmm. we're all sensitive. I'm, I'm sensitive as much as anybody else. And if it's written in a certain way, I can think, oh, fuck you. You know, the, I'll do it, but you sort of get, you get riled up. But in other ways, if, you should always start off with, hey, man, you know, thanks for, I can see that you really put a lot into this. And I thank you for that. And I hear this and hear that. And, you know, just set you off gently and then come in with the changes. And then you feel like this guy's great. I love this guy. I'll do anything for this bloke. Oh, yeah. When you get that, when you get those people that write the email in, and it's so offhand and you think, Dah, you know. <laughs> Have you ever gotten a mix revision that is just super deep and you're like, you read it and you're thinking, God, am I that off base? But sometimes the language in an email, you can misread it. Oh, absolutely. And you obviously the tone of it can be one thing, but absolutely. maybe sometimes you get so caught up in the emotion of it, you think, maybe I'm not the guy. You're right. And, and sometimes what somebody regards as 
you know, a lot may actually be a little or, or vice versa. So it's a learning process every time. But I think that's part of our job as producers and mixers is being able to get in there and understand what people are looking for and translate their thoughts. It's always been like that as a producer. It's, you know, you have to sort of look at your artist and think, he's saying that, but I know exactly what he means. He doesn't mean that at all. He means this. And then you just do what you think. And then they say, that's it. But, you know, it's part of our job is to try and understand what they're looking for because they're not mm -hmm. often some artists are not the best at describing it there hasn't been too many things like that for me i've been pretty lucky there's one one artist i was working with who i sent the first pass to and uh, have a couple of songs and he said no it's really not the direction that i'm thinking of for the record and i said to him well okay that's fine it's the first pass it's my first pass why don't you come over and we'll sit and talk about music for an hour and just give me some of your thoughts and some of your favorite records. And just so I get a little more of a sense of, of what you feel about the way that you want the record to sound. And then I'll go through and I'll make some revisions and we'll see how close we can get it on the second pass. It'll be, it'll be fun. Come over and have a beer and, you know, and he's like, no, no, I'm no good. I, I, I really can't express myself with what I want. And I said, well, if you can't express it to me, I don't really know what you want me to do i mean he said well let's just leave it and i said oh okay that's the only time that's ever happened he just wasn't even prepared to give me anything as to what he didn't like and when you're given nothing how do you know wow. how do you know what what you're going for if you can't express anything that's only ever happened once but wow. um, yeah it was, i remember at the time thinking that's bizarre that is bizarre you know yeah, you know, just come over and just hang out and just, you don't have to express it. Just tell me your favorite albums or what your favorite album would be as an example for this or, but I got nothing, but that's only happened once. Do you ever let people sit in the room and mix with you or do you like to mix solo? I prefer mixing solo, but I don't mind. A lot of the yeah. time now, especially having studio, like, uh, you know, sometimes it's been two or three times where I'll mix an album and I would make a couple of changes and then the artist will fly in for the final changes mm. and they'll come into the studio and maybe, you know, some artists are very specific about vocal rides they want to make on phrases and I'll just sit with them. And I actually really enjoy that at that point. Um, I mean, that's one thing that we've lost by being isolated is those fun times of just being in a studio with a bunch of musicians that make you laugh like hell, you know, and you're just having a great time. And um, that's one of the great joys of, being a record producer was just hanging out with musicians and just all the fun times you could have. But, you know, now I basically work on my own. Sometimes it's a little bit lonely, I must say. In over the course of your career, uh, as far as mistakes are concerned, are there any life-changing ones that really, that mistakes you made that really kind of uh, caught your attention? Mistakes is difficult, isn't it? Because, you know, the one thing about what we do is there are no rules anyway. So even if you make a mistake, the mistake can be the best thing you ever did. So sometimes, so it's a, it's a difficult one to put. I mean, I definitely feel that, you know, now I'm at a point with 30 years experience. I've recorded with musicians from all over and I've mixed records, countless records, hundreds of records. I feel I'm in a much better place now to be able to work with an artist than I've ever been, just purely because Every time that you work with an artist, you learn something new from them. And it goes into your personal arsenal of like, oh, that's really cool. I hadn't actually, you know, and they build up through the years to a point where somebody says something and you're like, it's OK, I, I know what we should do here. I've got an idea. So you're much more relaxed. You're much more aware. And you just have this knowledge base. It's built up over a track record. A lot of the artists that I worked with, 
I was so young when I was working with them. I was working with Robert Plant at like 25. And I didn't even really, I didn't, I mean, he knows that. I mean, we're friends, you know, but I didn't even like Led Zeppelin when I worked with Robert Plant. I was still a punk rocker. And I worked <laughs> with David Bowie when I was 26. And I was learning as I was going along. And I would love to have had the opportunity, if I could, to have to be working with them now, if you see what I mean. I feel I would be right. of more use. Um, but, you know, sometimes artists like the freshness and the fact that you don't actually know everything all the time anyway. It's much better for them, you know. Um, I know that Robert Plant enjoyed the fact that I wasn't so sort of, oh, Robert Plant from Led Zeppelin. I was not like that because I didn't really didn't really um, understand. Of course, living in America for all these years and being a big Led Zeppelin fan now, I look back and think, how the hell did I do that? I mean, we were asked to, I, I grew up in the 80s and every studio in the 80s, the first thing that would come in on a new session was a Lin drum or a DMX setup, Oberheim and it'd be drum machines, you know, everything. It was the 80s. I recorded maybe two drum kits and I worked with Kajagoogoo and Dead or Alive and Lamal and all sorts of alternative bands. And then suddenly I'm working with Robert Plant. And, you know, I really wasn't that experienced at working with a, a live traditional setup. And, you know, he asked me if I'd recorded a lot of drums. And I said, yeah, I, you know, I've done a fair amount, but I was sort of not being too honest. But the next minute I'm in a in Marcus Studios in London on a Harrison board, which I had no idea how to work. Um, I'd only ever worked on a Neve or a SSL. So, and I have a live setup with about five musicians, all wanting different headphone balances. Richie Haywood from Little Feet playing drums, who I didn't even know who he was at the time. I, I hadn't ever heard of wow. Little Feet. And, you know, I'm a kid basically in front of this console and the studio owner, we were having a few problems and Robert's like, hey, why is this headphone thing not working out? And I was, you know, ah, oh, you know, and the studio owner took Robert aside and said, that kid in there doesn't really know what he's doing. And luckily for me, Robert didn't, you know, have a problem with me. And he said, no, he's fine. And he stuck up for me. And, you know, but they, but I think probably it was my fault, a lot of the things that were going wrong, but we persevered and it was actually, a, turned out to be a great record, but. That was Now and Zen? That, well, no, that the Now and Zen was the second time Robert came back and I produced Now and Zen. I was sort of brought on as an engineer for Shaken and Stirred, which had the song Little by Little on okay. it. And which ironically is one of my favorite drum sounds. Uh, but because that's, Richie Hayward, really, not me. That's why, because he's such a great player. And as we all know now, um, getting a great drum sound, you're in the hands of the drummer for at least 90% of the sound, I'd say. We always talk about it on the podcast. Uh, it seems a common thing that younger people seem to think that, and some older people, if they just go into credit card debt for that one last piece of gear, it's going to be the difference between, you know, it's going to be a career changer for them. And you know, we always talk about it on the podcast no. and say, no, it's it's not. You need to watch what you buy and, and concentrate oh, yeah. more on the music and your relationship Absolutely. with the artist. No, I, I totally agree. And, you know, we, we have far more, all, all the records that I made for the first part of my career, you know, I have far more stuff at my fingertips now than I ever had then. And, you know, let's face it, with a piece of music, I mean, you know, you should only really need a couple of delays and some reverb and a few, maybe a couple of little bits. And if, the, if you can't get it together, a bit of distortion here and there, if you can't make something really cool and creative and make it emotively make sense to that song with those small bits of gear, then you've really got a problem, I think. What's your two favorite records that you've met? 
Oh, that's difficult. Um, I, re I really like, um, I mixed an album a few years ago for a band called Porcupine Tree. Oh, yeah. Um, called in, in, in Absentia. And I mixed that with Stephen Wilson. And that was, that was a pretty cool sounding record. Once again, because it had been extremely well recorded. It's so easy to take the credit when you're mixing. I mean, for things. I often, when I'm mixing an album, I'll be, oh, this mix is sounding particularly good. And then I'll step back and think, no, this is because this is the best song on the record. <laughs> you know, it's not your thing. <laughs> because when you've got a great song, you say, you start balancing and you'll be like, the drums are too loud. I like it with the drums loud. It's cool. The guitars are too loud. Sounds pretty good with the guitars too loud. Because guess what? It's fucking cool, you know, which is why when you it's hear a, a great Zeppelin song or whatever, you could go through and find loads of things that are wrong with them. But who cares, right? Whoever cared, you know. But so anyway, yeah. a lot of the great records that I've mixed would be because of the songs and because they've been well recorded. I really enjoyed this record that I did last year with the Billy Childs record. It was a tribute to Laura Nairo. It has people like Yo-Yo Ma and Wayne Shorter and all these just amazing vocalists. And uh, it was recorded and produced by Billy and Larry Klein. And it's a jazz sort of vocal album. And it was just so fun. These string arrangements are beautiful. Um, it was actually nominated for three Grammys we got, so it was, and it won one. So, so it was a, it was, it was just great to be able to mix something so different. And I think that another thing that through my career I've been lucky to do is not get stuck in one area, because um, it's easy mm -hmm. to do. Let's face it. And if you enjoy one area and want to stay in it, then all good. But I would hate that. I mean, I love the fact that now I'm being able to mix some of these sort of jazz recordings, and at the same time be mixing poppy stuff and heavy stuff. I mean, it's just nice to be able to do music from different genres and not get stuck in one area. What are you using for monitors? What, what do you enjoy? Well, I've got, um, I've had the same monitors for bloody years. I've got these Genlec 1031As. Oh, and I love great. them. I just have had them. For, I don't even know when I got them now. I was trying to think about it the other day, but I really like them. And, you know, they said to me, you know, we, we, we want you to try the new Genlecs. And they brought them down and they're self-aligning to the room. And as much as they were great, I just, I just didn't like it. I said, to, my complaint for me was that they just sounded like the music was suddenly digital when it wasn't. It was so mm. clear. And I don't know, maybe it's just because I'm old school, but I love these 1031As. And I also have, um, you know, these headphones, these, um, what, what number are they? The D DT770 Pro headphones. Oh, yeah, boy. And, um, and I also have um, these uh, Neumann powered little powered speakers. You know these ones. Really yeah, uh, that used to be, that used to be Klein and Hummel. I have uh, yeah, I've got the uh, I have these the oh yeah yeah the Klein and Hummel O three hundreds. Yeah. Well, I go between my yeah. Genlex and these and the headphones. I mean, I still use the headphones quite a lot. I mean, I find with the smaller rooms, it's 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 just good to get that confirmation, especially, you know, when dialing in certain detail in the low end and things. Just be able to put your headphones on and work in that wear on for a while and then go back. Just moving around, I think it's nice. And it gives you an, an ear break too. Yeah. Well, Tim, this has been fantastic. You, you've, been a, you've been a great guest and I guess that's about it. Thank you so much, by the way, for... for for letting me be part of it. I really appreciate it. And I'm grateful. I really am. All right. Cheers. Bye, mate. All right. Thank you. Holy crap. What a great, great guy. Uh, really good information. And man, a mind-blowing discography. Many records I am a big fan of. Here we go. Headed into the next batch of 25. I hope you'll stick with us here. Carry on and we'll, uh, or I'll carry on and we'll, uh, we'll, keep, we'll keep the conversation going. So, hey, spread the word, 
many of you who are diehard fans and and are have been here episode after episode i appreciate your support if you are new please spread the word tell your fellow recording students tell your fellow uh your fellow uh recording professional friends whether you're new and up and coming or whether you're an old diehard uh curmudgeon who is just scratching their head wondering how they're going to function in this new recording economy that we have in front of us well spread the word and let's let's keep talking about this and figuring it out all right thanks for being here thanks for listening thanks for taking the time i will certainly stop talking now so you can get about your day that's it take care Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.